So we're going to have two lessons today, seven and eight. Hopefully I'm working on it where now I'm going to try in the future to put under each classwork section the class, then with the two lessons and the required readings so it's all contained and we don't get jumbled up. Uh, I'll try to also add the date that the class is due as we move on. Uh, both of these are classes in a certain sense that I've given before, but I really worked on them and I wasn't too happy with the way they came out. But this will often happen. I'll teach it and then we'll see if I like it or not. It may turn out great. It may not. So we move. I'm going to switch them actually. We're going to do love first and then holiness. Figured that made more sense because looking over our previous lessons, um, everything that we've talked about, and, and again, we're just up into the ten, first 10 lessons, we are just laying a, a foundation, a comprehensive vision of understanding the moral life. Everything we talked about is somehow contingent upon our experience of God's love for us. Not, not an intellectual comprehension that God loves us, but an experience love that is transformative. It grounds us in our identity as sons and daughters, and it, it gives us desire for beatitude, for happiness, to be with the Lord fully. And so the, the only response that we can give to this divine gift is love, returning gratitude, which ends up being uh, another way of understanding uh, living the moral life. So I'm going to sort of sum all of this up with a quote that we should all know, a passage from Scripture by now from our good friend St. John. It's the first letter of St. John, verse four, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, even though you could keep reading on if you wanted to. Beloved, let us love one another, for God, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So we all know that. God is love. Because of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit giving themselves to each other for all eternity. And that superabundance of love spills out into creation. And we realize that we are made in his image. So as a result, we are called to love. And so that experience of God's love, as we talked about, that he took the initiative, that he loved us first, leads us to love God in return, but also, as John says, to love others. So this idea of the love of God and the love of others. Gaudium et Spes 24, which we're going to reference a couple of times, says this. For this reason, love for God and neighbor is the first and greatest commandment. Sacred scripture, however, teaches us that the love of God cannot be separated from love of neighbor. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. It's nothing more than a simple extension of this. Love is the foundational element of the Christian moral life. Foundational moral element of the Christian moral life. And Jesus is clear on this. We can see all different sorts of places, particularly Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. 
all, of course, know this passage. We should know it well. You shall love your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus sort of boils down all of the the, the Decalogue, boils down all of the prophets, the law, all of the Old Testament to this twofold commandment. It all comes down to loving God and loving neighbor. We see it continuously throughout the teaching of Christ and also in the rest of the New Testament. Love of God and love of neighbor, love in general, is a non-negotiable for Jesus. We are going to be Christians. We're going to live out our our sequela Christi. We must live it out in love. But God, love of God, though, and this is what I think I, I want to make this point very important here. Love of God and love of neighbor are connected. Certainly, God loves us. We return that love to him by worshiping him, by giving him praise, by giving him glory. But it can't just be God's love of God alone, that we're just going to retire somewhere and love God. That love of God has to spill over to love of neighbor. And so uh, some interesting quotes from Pope Francis in this document, Gaudete et Exultate, number 61. He's talking about this responsibility we have, yes, to love God, but also to love our brothers and sisters. And he explains it in a very unique way. He said, amid the thicket of precepts and prescriptions, Jesus clears away to seeing two faces, that of the Father and of our brother. He does not give us two more formulas or two more commands. He gives us two faces, or better yet, one alone. The face of God reflected in so many other faces. For in every one of our brothers and sisters, especially the least, the most vulnerable, the defenseless, and those in need, God's very image is found. And so by looking at the face of our brothers and sisters, we see God's face. And so by loving them, we love the Lord. Where, where do we hear that? Where, where, where else have we heard that maybe, y'all? True, but where else? But specifically, brother knows this. Thank you, yeah. Whatever you've done for the least of my brothers, you've done to me. So they're, they're interconnected. We have got to be able to love our brothers and sisters, particularly if you look at Matthew 25, the ones who are poor, the ones who are naked, the ones who are lonely and without love. So it's not just a love of humanity in general. I just I love others. I love people. No. It's the person in front of me. It's my neighbor, my brother or sister. Friends and family, yes, but especially the poor and those in need. They need to be seen. They need to be loved. We can't just say, be, you know, be like if we, we when Jesus asks, who is my neighbor? My neighbor, the Good Samaritan. That's what we get. The neighbor is the person in the ditch. Actually, the truth is the neighbor is the Samaritan, the person that you don't want to love you because you don't like them, because you judge them, because you put them down. Pope Francis, again, this is the same document, number 98. If I encounter a person sleeping outdoors on a cold night, I can view him or her as an annoyance, an idler, an obstacle in my path, a troubling sight, a problem for politicians to start out, or even a piece of refuse cluttering a public space. Or I can respond with faith and charity and see in this person a human being with a dignity identical to my own, a creature infinitely loved by the Father and image of God, a brother or sister redeemed in Christ. That is what it is to be a Christian. 
Can holiness somehow be understood apart from this lively recognition of the dignity of each human being? So we love God, and it's good. We want to go to Mass, and we want to have adoration. But if this is not spilling over in our own prayer and our willingness to encounter others, to recognize their dignity, we become Pharisees. We've got a pretty significant problem. So we can safely say, though, in getting back to the core of this, without here making this distinction of love of God and love of neighbor, the Christian moral life, or maybe we could even say the Christian life in general, is a quote-unquote calling to love. Moral life, the Christian life, is a calling to love. More than anything else, the Christian is one who is defined by love. That, that chapter or that essay that I gave you from Ratzinger to read, he boils it down. This is what it is. We'll be known by our love. The love of God and love of neighbor. So from that same article, here is a quote that sort of condenses it. Quote, however much Christological and ecclesiastical faith is absolutely necessary, we need it, we need these dogmas, we need these teachings. At the same time, it remains true that everything we encounter in dogma is, ultimately, just interpretation. Interpretation of the one truly sufficient and decisive fundamental reality of the love between God and men. And it remains true, consequently, that those people who are truly loving, who are as such also believers, may be called Christians. So it's Ratzinger's point here. So orthodoxy is important. You need that. But without love, right belief is not enough to be called Christian. Oh, I'm super orthodox. I do everything right. But I'm a jerk to everybody? No, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And the same with orthopraxy, which is the proper following of rules. You can follow all the rules. You could be to the T, just like the Pharisees. But without love, it doesn't matter. Where do we also hear this? The importance of love to, to animate and form all that we do as Christians. St. Paul, where? 1 Corinthians 13. Yes. You, you, you can be close. You, you have, I have prophecy, but if you have no love, it doesn't matter. Love is the only thing that matters. It must animate all that we do. Now, this all sounds great, but I know when I was in seminary in the 90s, and I'm pretty sure today, y'all are hearing this, or maybe some of y'all are hearing this and saying, bah, I don't know. There's a reticence to accept this. Why? No, it is. We're going to get to that. But no, but no, it's not. No, it's not that. You would understand that Josh is someone old enough to understand this, but we'll see. I think it's kind of like a fear of either relativism or like, you know, getting around other things that are more like teaching. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because in, in the post-Vatican II, not because of Vatican II, what was promoted was just love everybody in the 70s and 80s, and sort of pop psychology. I remember when I learned about love in Catholic school, we learned about warm fuzzies and cold pricklies. We want to give warm fuzzies to everyone, and we don't want to give cold pricklies to everyone. Of course, I mean, when you're in third grade, you're not going to study St. Thomas Aquinas. But the point is, this is this idea, oh, you're trying to escape rules, uh, escape dogma. This is an idea that 
free love. It doesn't have any demands. It doesn't have any direction. It's the, the romantic love uh, promoted in Hollywood and pop songs. And we're right to reject that. However, the problem, I think, does happen and can happen that to avoid that, we go to the exact opposite extreme, where we react against it by making definitions of love too academic and too abstract. I'm going to have this big thesis on love, and it sounds great, but it's not practical. Or we make it seem so very difficult. Love is an act of the will. You must bear the cross. You must make sacrifices. You must suffer. Then nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. There's, there's no doubt that, that in both of these cases, there are going to be warm fuzzies and cold pricklies, and there are going to be crosses. But the fact of the matter is, our, our experience contradicts this overly academic and, and overly sort of rigoristic concept of love. It is a joy to love and to be loved. It is. And that's our experience. And so how do we then avoid those two extremes and come to a proper understanding of love so that we can live it out? So that we can live it out. And so this is the difficult challenge, not just for me, but for, geez, for everybody over the course of the past 3,000 years. How do we come up with a sufficient definition or understanding of love. Now, we all know that in English we have one word, love, but for have y'all did y'all read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves or uh, Nigrin's Eros and Agape? Probably didn't read that. Yeah, where well we look at that we use the word love, but there's there's love of affection, there's philia, the brotherly love, there's eros, the love between man and woman, and of course there's agape, the, the self-giving love. And these are good distinctions, but even then, if you, you read Deus Caritas Est, Benedict talks about, all right, these are distinctions, but they kind of all fall into each other, particularly Eros uh, and Agape. They, they intermingle. And I think, as we'll talk about next year, when we talk about married love and Eros, uh, how difficult it is, how they're separate, but they're often very, very intertwined. Now, we, of course, are going to and can talk about love as charity, is that theological virtue that is infused within us. Well, that's important and that's good, but it still doesn't cover everything. And, and, and it can become very, very academic and very theological. What does St. Thomas Aquinas define love as? To will, to will the good for the other, which I think is great. It's a choice, even when it's difficult. But it has to be more than that. Because if all you do is define love by that, then there's no feeling. There's no emotion. There's no desire to love. I'm willing to good for you, even though I think you're a jerk. I'm willing to good for you. When you mix it with the deontological ethics that we've bought into, it becomes or it can become rigoristic in a law. We see a significant movement forward with our understanding of love with St. Therese. Even though a lot of people certainly have abused and misunderstood what Therese was, she believed that her vocation was to be love in the heart of the church. In her little way, to an extent, doing small things with great love. And there's so many quotes from her about the value and the importance of love. And Therese didn't, she would have been in the Thomistic tradition because Thomas would have been picked up by the Carmelites and she would have and, and sort of advanced by the Carmelites. 
and she would have had that. But, but she puts it in so simple way that people respond to. You give someone a treatise from the scholastics on love and you give someone some writings of St. Therese on love, this, the latter is going to have a bigger impact. So Therese, something, one quote, I'm going to give you a zillion of them. Merit does not consist in doing or giving much. It consists in loving much, loving others. We, know, we intuitively sort of know what this is. And then finally, let's say in the 20th century, uh, as a result of the sort of personalist movement, Carabotia, Vatican II, how do we now tend to, in the church at least, focus our definition of love? What, what do we tend to focus on? True, true, who deserves love, but what else? Gift, gift yes, love is gift. The gift of self. If you want to take the of the body, the spouse meaning the body. But of course, rooted in, in God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 3.16, you all should know that by now. Christ canonic self-gifted himself in the incarnation, on the cross, in the Eucharist. And of course, Gaudium et Spes, that very, very famous quote, man only finds himself through the sincere gift of self. So all these are valid definitions, and we could spend the next hour parsing these out, but I'm not going to. Even though it's valid, they're important, and there are sure other definitions we can give, and they all contain some element of the truth. But I want to take a different approach, and it's like um, what we, we talked about with the virtues. I may not, or will really see it, if you come and say, Father, give me a definition of prudence, I may not be able to define exactly what prudence is, but I know prudence when I see it. Zarosaddle says, if you want to see the virtue, look at the virtuous man or woman. It's the same way, I may not be able to define love, or I may have all these different academic and theological definitions, but I know the loving person when I see it. I know love, but I specifically know the loving person, the one like Mother Teresa, who lives from the core of love. And, and something we're going to talk about a little bit later is this lived theology of the saints. We're going to talk about it actually uh, on Wednesday. You know, we want to study and understand what confession is. Let's look at the life of Jean Vianney. We want to understand love and sacrifice and care for the poor. Let's look at Mother Teresa. They incarnate, they make present these deeper spiritual and theological truths. We can learn a lot from the lives of the saints as a font, not necessarily of revelation, but of living the faith. So we could all in our mind, I'm sure, just as we talked about, think of someone we know who truly knows God's love for them and we believe is sort of truly confident and holy. And as a result, probably that same person we could say as a person who is truly loving who exhibits these characteristics of love. So what are they? What are the characteristics of love? Well, we're gonna, we could go on a long, long list, but let's just cheat and go back to St. Paul. His hymn to love, 1 Corinthians 13, verses three to seven. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous. Love is not pompous, it is not inflated, it is not rude, it does not seek its own interests. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, 
but rejoices with the truth, joy. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All right? These are the primary characteristics of someone who loves. I really encourage you, even though most people focus on chapter 8, which I agree is a bit confusing, and we'll talk about that next year, read chapter 4 of Amoris Laetitia, the Pope's exploration of this hymn to love. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Probably one of the best things he's written. And then you could also, yes, Well, go read Pope Francis. He'll explain it. <laughs> no, it's Amoris Laetitia, Chapter 4. He really does a great job in going down all of these things and giving an explanation succinctly what it means. And what I did, if you also want it, and we're going to talk about this more later, I, I am all in favor of the Ten Commandments. We need them. But y'all have need to be able to move beyond examining your conscience by the Ten Commandments. If that's all y'all are doing, we've got a problem. We should be moving forward, as we're going to talk about. Uh, commandments are good, they're important, but once they're integrated, we need to move forward. And so I made up an examination of conscience for a married couples retreat that I later sort of expanded to everybody uh, based off of that, uh, where you examine your conscience according to the hymn to love. And I put a link on that, too in case you want to be edified uh, or examine your conscience in a little deeper way. We know love when we see it. We know the loving person when we see him. And we know it even more when we receive it. When we receive love, when we are loved by a loving person, when we're embraced or received by someone that we know is truly saintly and good. It's very, very hard to deny. Make sense? So without, I'm not denying all of these other definitions about gift of self, and we can get into all kinds of discussions. I mean, we could have a whole lesson, a whole semester just on love. But what I want to do is keep it in mind, I want to take a step back and kind of do a deeper explanation of other characteristics of love that maybe are a bit more theoretical that come from some of the readings that I gave you, but I think uh, get to the heart of what we're talking about. Let's, ref- let's return to the twofold commandment of love. So when Jesus says the great commandment is to love God and to love neighbor, why does that seem to be problematic? Think about it. Christ commanding us to love God and neighbor. What, what seems to be like an inherent problem there? Initial thought. It seems odd because it's it's a command of us, we're ordered to do it, but love to be loved needs to be a free choice and free action. Ding, 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 ding. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are going to love Ryan. All right? I demand you to love Ryan. Remember you're a kid. You're going to love your brother and sister. You're going to love God. No, you, you can't force someone to love. By its very nature, love has to be a, a free choice. It has to be. Uh, so how can Jesus say this? How can we talk about the Lord commanding us to love? And, 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 and I've thought and prayed about that a lot. 
this 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 command to love. How is it possible? And I really do think that if you read, I give it to a lot of my classes in spiritual directees, Balthazar's chapter from the Christian state of life called The Calling to Love, where he really, in his typical way, and using about 15 pages instead of maybe just two that Ratzinger would use to explain all of this, that in love, because of its very nature and our inherent understanding of it is something that is freely chosen, there is no exterior obedience to that command. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm a, oh, I must love this person. And granted, sometimes we, 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 we have to show gestures of love and kindness. But his argument is that if one truly loves and is living from that core of love, then that obedience becomes interior, a self-imposed obligation springing from the nature of love itself. So he explains it. Obligation, then, is a word that pure love does not know. Or rather, its obligation is always a choice. So it's obligation, this commandment. It experiences the necessity it is under of loving the beloved as the highest and most perfect freedom. A freedom not to be exchanged for all the goods of this world. What appears as cold duty to the one who does not love is for love a joy. Because love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If I love you, and I truly love you, and I have the freedom of my own heart, because whether you're God or my spouse or my friend, because that I experience that true love, I don't need to be commanded to love you. But yet, I am very obliged to love you because the nature of love itself and the connection it makes with the beloved implies this obligation. But the obligation is always a choice. True, but the difference is between an exterior following and an interior following. I can I, I can follow the command to show kindness to this other person, but you can't force me to love somebody. But if I truly love someone, that love itself is going to impose certain interior obligations. I'm going to be bound to that person in a way that – because I, I can demand you out of justice to be kind to this person – but it's not love. It's, you know, I can command you uh, to, to be just to this person and under compulsion, but I can't force you to love the person. But the truth is, for the person who's experienced true love for someone, whatever type of love it is, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need an obligation imposed on me. I don't need a law to tell me that I need to be loving to my best friend. He, he asked me for something. I'm willing to do it. My mom or my dad. It may be difficult, but I want to do it. It's a joy to be able to serve. Is this making sense? Let me keep going on, and I think uh, it may make a little bit clearer. What Balthazar claims, and, and I love this, that love takes the form of a vow, of an inner vow. That implicitly, if I love you, then I am going to 
bind myself to you because of that love. Granted, marriage sort of makes this explicit. Priesthood makes it explicit, even though you're taking promises, not vows. Because I love you, I am making this, love takes the form of a vow. I promise to be there for you, to be committed to you, to be your servant, to be your slave, whatever you want to call it. The irony is, though, in a certain sense, you're restricting your freedom. I'm committed to you. I'm committed to this person. I'm committed to the obligations that I take upon myself that spring from love that are not put on outside of me. I'm not, I'm not being loving to you because I have to. I'm loving you because I want to. I'm serving you because I want to. And so, but you take the obligation and there's a greater experience of freedom and love to serve the beloved. But what's more, if you remove love from the equation in these relationships, things change. So Balthazar again states, the more we remove ourselves from the innermost core of love, the more the commandment to love acquires for us a a negative character and becomes a prohibition. In this way, the sweet inevitability of the lover's free choice to love is transformed into the harsh compulsion of an obligation. That's the key. Whenever we quit loving the other person, whenever we quit receiving the love, then the commandment, instead of something that comes from love as a free choice, becomes that negative character and a prohibition. You can't do this. You can't do that. If I truly love you, I do not need to be told, don't stab you with a knife in the face. These negative prohibitions of what you don't do or what you shouldn't do. If I truly love you, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to cheat on you. If I truly am acting out of love. But we remove that, oh, then we all of a sudden start needing these rules. Whether it be through God or through uh, our relationship with uh, with other people. So that, that that filial obedience, and again, these are all different types of love. Here's the filial obedience, the love we owe God, springs from the love of the Father. The Son experiences the love. He knows he's loved. He knows his identity, and so binds himself to the Father in return. That's why the older son, did he really know the love of the Father? No. Because he's acting like he's a servant, trying to earn the love. It's not the obedience of a servant to a master. Love is given freely for love returned. Response with the gift is, is, is love given in return. Um, you know, I don't know where exactly to put this, but I mean, I put it a little bit later. But so I read this article. We're going, y'all are going to read it for later on at the end of theological bioethics. People, how many times have people come to you and said, oh, I, 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 I didn't want to call you because I didn't want to be a burden to you. Do people ever tell you that? Yeah, I don't want to be a burden to you. And, and what is our normal response? Oh, no, you're not a burden. Let me Tell me what's going on. In this article that I read, which we'll read next year, and it's really changed the way I look at things because it deals with, with euthanasia. And the guy says, yeah, I want to be a burden on my loved ones. Loving others implies a burden. Burden, actually, the etymology means to bear as a bear a child. So when people tell me, Father, I didn't I want to call you out a problem. I didn't want to be a burden. No, you are a burden. You are. 
But but because I love you, because you're my child, because you're my parishioner, because you're my friend, please burden me. Please burden me. That's the point. If I don't love you and I don't care about you, yeah, you may be a burden. You're a pain in my behind. I don't want to bother with this problem. I will out of justice. But if I really love you, then I'm very, very happy to carry the burden. Please burden me. Please reach out. Um, and it's shocking when you tell somebody, yes, you are a burden to me. Oh, no, it's good. <laughs> we're supposed to be burdens to each other. We're going we're gonna to get into that a little bit later on. Does that make sense? So the one, as I said, the one who loves does not need to be commanded not to hurt the beloved. This is why Augustine's phrase, you know, that this is, again, this is, again, this is part of why people really, wow, free this, you know, um, freak out about this. What is Augustine's favorite, famous phrase about love and morality? Do you all know it? Even though I, I, can't, find the exa- I, found, I can't find the exact Latin. Yeah, love God and do what you will. Some say just love and do what you will. But regardless, love God, love and do what you will. What does that mean? Oh, how can he say that? You know, does he just love God and go and pick up some prostitutes? No. <laughs> if you truly love God or neighbor, you will only desire to choose the good. You're not going to have to be told, don't stab the person with a, 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 a knife. You're never going to intentionally cause harm. Will you cause harm? Yeah, we hurt those we love. But so there is a deep truth there if you understand the nature of what love is. So love goes beyond command. It's a command, an obligation that springs from the very nature of love itself, that we bind ourselves to those we love as a vow. But here's the second point. In this analysis of love, and it goes back to our good friend Ratzinger in his article, love desires to go beyond command, the command, or or this understanding of command as sort of a negative prohibition, and it goes, wants to go beyond what is simply required, you know, for for the love, for the beloved. It wants to give all to go beyond what is required. The example I like to use of this is imagine these two examples. So you have a neighbor that you do not know or somebody you don't know calls you up and says, hey, I got the rota. I'm hungry. Can you can you bring me some soup? I got nobody to, to go. I don't have waiter or whatever. I don't I don't have DoorDash. So you busy during your day are going to say, oh, I don't know this guy. Maybe he's your jerk. Maybe he's like throwing trash in your backyard and stuff. But you're going to say, because I, I, out of justice, I'm going to be nice to this guy. So you're going to go up in your cabinet and you're going to look at all your Campbell soup. And you're going to find the crappiest one that you would never eat. The oldest one. If you're nice, you're going to open it up, put it in the microwave, bring it to him at the door. See you later, dude. You're going to fulfill the, the justice. You're going, to, you're going to help him. But let's say... It's the person you love most in the world. It's your mama or your, your girlfriend or your buddy. Oh, I'm sick. I'm, I'm gonna go pick some carrots out of my garden. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make my own stock. I'm gonna cook a soup and I'm gonna come feed it to you. That's what we do. It goes above and beyond what's required. So not only is the obligation seen within love, it goes above and beyond what is required. 
So I love from that 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 from Ratzinger. The Christian is the person who does not calculate. Rather, he does something extra. Therese says, uh, what is that? The one language that God does not know is arithmetic. He's not there just trying to figure out exactly what you owe. It goes beyond justice. He is, in fact, the lover who does not ask, how much further can I go and still remain within the realm of venial sin, stopping short of mortal sin? Rather, the Christian is the one who simply seeks what is good without any calculation. This is the mystery at once incredibly demanding and liberating to be found behind the word superabundance, without, without which there can be no Christian righteousness. So he's implying that you can't just even be right just by following the commandments. You are truly have Christian righteousness. You have to have a superabundance to go above and beyond what is required. So he's implying love never shoots for the minimum or tries to see what they can get away with. Imagine in your own mind, how much can I hurt and make my best friend mad before he doesn't want to be friends with me? No one would say that, but we do it to God all the time. How far can I go with my girlfriend before I make God, before I pass into mortal sin? That's the worst attitude ever. You know, and so when you're going to get, oh, trust me, you're going to get people come. Father, uh, I need to know how much can I drink before it becomes a sin? So that's, that's how far can I, you know, steal? How much money can I steal from my best friend before it becomes a sin? No. Wrong question. If you truly love God, the question is, is what can I do? What's the prudent thing to do? But what's going to give the most glory to God? Funneling a six-pack of Natty Light on Mardi Gras is not going to give glory to God. It's just not. Funneling one beer is not going to give glory to God. Drinking Natty Light is not going to give glory to God. <laughs> Unless you're doing penance. Unless it's Lent and you're doing penance. It gives all... So this is this is, but it's all the greatest example is John two. Jesus doesn't just make wine; he makes the best wine, and he makes a lot of it. It's the superabundance of God's grace, the superabundance of gifts. Love goes beyond what is required. Now, granted, it takes a while to build up to that, but but that's the desire that true love has. So if you again, you you look at the people that we're talking about that they don't have to be told to help people. They want to. There's a great service. Even that love spills over to people they may not be in relationship with. They just love people in general. The poorest of the poor. Mother Teresa. And they go above and beyond in helping them and being able to to show them Christ's love because they want to be a channel of Christ's love, but they also see Christ in that other person. And from that obedience, that vow, that limiting of freedom, that complete gift of self, that superabundance, what does this produce in the person who is giving, who is loving? What does it produce? Even though it may be difficult, Joy, happiness. Go hang out with Mother Teresa's sisters. They are washing in a bucket. They are living with the poorest of the poor. But they are joyful. They're, they're, they're making the choice. Yes, you've got to choose to love. It's a choice. You can't be forced. But if you begin to sort of really act from that inmost core, which of course is the Holy Spirit poured into your heart, and that's all part of it. This is 
we, we talk about the gift of love given, it's the spirit poured into our hearts. It's the wine at Cana, symbol of joy. The joy, the delight should flow from the experience of love, of loving and being loved, however you define it. It produces happiness. They're connected. It allows us, to, I think it's a, a connection to beatitude, connection to that blessedness that we talked about. We should want to love others, to bring joy to them and to bring joy to God by doing something great and glorious for God. You know, my, my I have here my favorite quote from Pope Francis when he talks about his favorite movie, Babette's Feast, which you should watch. If you don't know about it, he she cooks this big meal and she cooks a big meal. And there's a scene afterwards that she receives a grateful hug and praise. Ah, how you will delight the angels. It is a joy and great consolation, he says, to bring delight to others, to see them enjoying themselves. Goes with Peeper's book, Only the Lover Sings. So if we really love, there's that joy, the ability to sing. Because he knows he's loved by God, he experiences the gift of the Spirit, and can share it with others. Now, I do not want to give an overly idealistic portrait of love. It's easy to love our friends and those who are delighted in, but some people are hard to love. Those who refuse it, our enemies, those who persecute us, particularly friends who may betray us, the poor are not easy to love. And of course, we don't want to love because we could be hurt. We could be rejected. Loving others, whatever type of love it is, takes a great risk. C.S. Lewis, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The vulnerability of Jesus. He loved people so much it led him to the cross. I read somewhere a few weeks back about John 6. Jesus' vulnerability in saying, I want to give you my body and blood, and the disciples rejecting it. He exposed himself to the rejection there too. And yes, even though this all sounds nice, acting for the innermost core of love, sometimes love means bearing a cross. Suffering posed from the outside, a burden from the outside, or from within. But if it's chosen in love for God and neighbor, it is transformed from within. This is how Jesus can say, my yoke is easy, my burden light. Only if you carry it out of love. Otherwise, it becomes a bunch of rules, a bunch of prescriptions, and it crushes us. The lover is willing to suffer for the beloved. The mother taking on the suffering of her child, or the husband or wife. Jesus saying, I'm willing to lay down my life for my friends. We love, I don't want to lay down my life for a stranger, but for my friends I'll lay down my life. I'll take the bullet. And so Christ gives us that example, taking the cross out of love. He gave himself totally. And we should do the same. Christ's love, John 13, 34 to 35, love one another as I have loved you. Well, he gave his life. He poured himself out. We're called to do the same thing. Or else, y'all, this becomes nothing more than Pelagianism. All right? Uh, I'm going to are suffering for the sake of suffering. I'm in a bunch of penance. 
I tell you this with Lent coming up. Oh, I know. Lent's coming up. I'm going to do Exodus. I'm going to do Exodus 500. I'm going to take on every penance ever. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be awesome for Jesus. And then come Easter, I'm going to eat 12 Cadbury cream eggs, look at porn at three o'clock in the morning, and then feel like crap on Easter Monday. All right? It's happened too many times. We want to get into that. So fine, these are the penances I want to do. Why do you want to do them? Why do you, does love animate them? Love of God, love of someone else? If not, no. Why don't you just take the penances that you come, y'all live in a seminary. Y'all aggravate each other. You li- live these penances. It's much easier. We get just fine. I know, but still. <laughs> it's not animated by love. It becomes Pelagianism. Don't go. Mary doesn't want you to suffer for the sake of suffering. Go do penance. Okay, if you're going to go do penance, you're doing it out of love for people. Love for your sinners, love for your friends, not just for the sake of doing it. I'm going to go stick my hand in this freezing cold water just to do it. No. <laughs> you, you do it out of love. Otherwise, it, it, it doesn't work. There's a lot I can say about this, but i, I got to address one last question, and then we'll close, and then we'll go to our next lesson. This commandment to love, why? Why does God give us the commandment to love? To love God is obvious because he's God. He deserves our love. We understand this. But why our neighbor? What is the purpose? What is the reason the Lord gives us the command to love? Is it voluntarism? Uh, I just love. I might as well just make them hate each other, but love sounds good. Why is the command to love exist? True. Go a little deeper. True. Anybody want to guess? Um, because with God, we have more of a relationship with justice because he's literally given us everything, whereas our neighbor actually invites us to more participate in God's love in the sense of like doing something beyond obligation um, because we have neighbors. You know, our family has certain obligations, but like we meet a stranger and we don't like so owe him love the same way we owe God. So it pulls it out of us in a totally new way. True. That's that's still very kind of pragmatic, but but valuable. The answer is just so simple. The the it, it sounds almost like a tautology. God wants us to love people because people need to be loved. John Paul II, Redemptor Hominus 10, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. The reason we're commanded to love others is because we're created for love. The people deserve, have a right, have a need to be loved. And so many have never experienced it. I love this quote from Von Balthazar. Many wait only for someone to love them in order to become who they always could have been from the beginning. Think of those kids who are abused, who end up with this horrible lifestyle. They're waiting for someone to love them, to see them. That's why I like that, that reading from Waddell that I gave you all, how he talks about the first rule of love. It's creative, it's restorative, it's transformative. People need to be um, seen, known, and loved. Beautiful reflections there about what it is and what it does. 
And this is true with human love, but it's even more with divine. And, and here comes the real reason we have the command. Indeed, one can have a direct experience of God's love and prayer and liturgy and mystical experience. This is all wonderful. But nine times out of ten, our experience of God's love is mediated by another. Parents mediate the father's love, a priest, a friend, a spouse. Spouses love each other because they're constant sacraments, a reminder of God's love for each other, present before them. He wants to love others in and through us. That's why we must be emptied for, so he can fill us. The love of God poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit, then we share with each other. We're called to be instruments of his love. We can't do it if we haven't first received it. And that reception of the Father's love, the reception of God's love, and living in that transforms us. We're transformed, not only in knowing that we're lovable, but we are transformed and made holy. We endure the gaze of God. So we'll close on this for a second and then have a little break and then come back to continue our analysis of holiness.